I am beyond excited today to talk to a true legend in the Bachelor commentary oh. world right. from the Game of Roses podcast featured on the primetime HBO. Give it kind for of. Chad Colchin, how are you? Thanks, man. I'm doing good. I'm actually honored to be here sitting in this hallowed seat. You've had some heavy hitters sitting right here. You are one of the heaviest of hitters. I don't know if that's true, man. The Tino Franco one was great. You know, most viewed, most liked uh, episode we've done so far. Most mischaracterized by Nick Vial's podcast. <laughs> oh, no. You saw it today. We, we're five seconds in and we're already on Vial. I love he it. got lit up. <laughs> You know, whenever, whenever, and you, you'll yeah. appreciate this as a as a commentator. Mm -hmm. Whenever you know, you might do do an hour long podcast, or whatever, and then someone in the comment section will go. So basically, what you're saying is, and then they just defecate all over yeah. the points you've just <laughs> exactly, made. yeah. And that's exactly what happened after my conversation with Tino. Oh no! So what? basically, he's giving you dating advice. <gasps> yeah, I mean, there there are I think some people in Bachelor Nation and reality TV generally that are just like they've crossed some line with the majority of the audience of that show and there is no coming back. Um, speaking of Vial though, have you been watching uh, World's Toughest Test? Special Forces yes. guy? Yeah. And no, it started last night, right? I watched it last How night. Was I it? watched the pilot. It's interesting. They, I don't know if Vial is going to be a main character or Tyler Cameron for that matter, but they had both Tara Reid and Jojo Siwa were on it and they, both of them at some point had to go into this interrogation room where these two kind of like ex-military guys are really grilling them and they delivered their PTCs, their personal tragedy cards, and they both were about fame, how fame has affected their life. Mm. I thought that was kind of interesting. You don't really see uh, celebrities talk about it in the way that they were on the show, but. You know, it's very interesting that with celebrities, because that's obviously when you talk about Bachelor, you know, yep. they're celebrity in some sort of niche, nobody in the audience can sympathize or empathize with what they actually go through. Totally. Because even though you do get a reward of a social media following and sponsorship deals, you're still a human who has to deal with that. Yeah, but I mean, it's any, any kind of fame comes with that price. If you want to monetize that fame, so be it. But whether you're on reality TV, an actor, a musician, an athlete, whatever, uh, you're opening your life to public scrutiny to some degree if you're in any way in the public spotlight. Yeah, and you're essentially only scrutinized by people that are not doing as well as you. There's never, I mean, <laughs> right, in most cases, it's just like, you know, we're gonna, we can talk some politics in a minute here, but like sure. we're, the world's in despair. It's late stage capitalism. Yep. Everyone's fighting for better pay or whatever. And then some influencer comes along, bangs in a yurt or a windmill. And then all of a sudden <laughs> they sell three books. They're on church tours yep. and then they're rich. But that's what it seems like. It's not just that they're having sex in a windmill. They're undergoing a, especially in that case, a two-month-long, uh, you know, kind of obstacle course, emotional, psychological obstacle course set up by these people that at least in that era of the game, we're talking about Bachelor, of course, were, in my opinion, very malicious. That they were setting up these things to purposely force people into nervous breakdowns. And to go through some system like that it, you know, I think a lot of people think reality TV fame is an easy thing. I think it's one of the most difficult things because it's really only based on your personality and what is going to be perceived through the edit, through whatever show you were on. If you're an athlete or a musician or even an actor, there's a, a tangible product that comes out of that. If I can hit, you know, 40 home runs a season, I'm going to become a famous baseball player. If I can put up stats in any objective way in a sport, I'll be famous and it's based on that. But with reality TV, it's based on like this, again, this skewed perception of who you are based on a completely contrived edit in some cases. Yeah, so you're essentially describing it as qualitative measurement versus quantitative. 
Yeah, yeah to it's some like degree. you don't, you can't really measure always why someone's a villain or why someone's right. liked. I mean, I with when it came when it comes to Logan. And when it comes to Brayden, those were characters that were meant to be villains, and they charmed the pants off of the audience. Totally, the villain edit just didn't stick. But even the in the villain edit, like if you, uh, Brayden's a great example. Brayden Bowers on this last season twenty Bachelorette Charity Lawson season, the producers gave him the first impression rose, so they knew from the very beginning they wanted this guy to seem viable. That's a way to offset a villain edit is to be like, oh look, he got the first impression rose. And I don't, I don't know, you know. If many people know this, but the the leads don't choose almost any of the roses that are given out on group dates, first impression rose, any of that stuff. The producers design all of that. So they knew going in with Braden Bowers that maybe he would be a villain, that they were going to try to present him as though he wasn't, which I think makes him uh, more viable. You know, a straight villain edit is just like, that's when people start getting death threats and stuff. Yeah, and you know, the the other thing with death threats, it's like, obviously, I don't condone any DMing. I just say, leave them alone. Same. But what <laughs> was a death threat in the 80s is not a death threat of 2023. I mean, That's true. they used to have to clip out magazine letters and find postage <laughs> and write things and right. email their agent to get the... Yeah. Now it's like you can just fire off something from the shitter. So it's like, all right, there's credible death threats and then yeah. there's assholes online that have therapy that they could use. Yeah, of course. I don't think any of the death threats these people are getting are credible. But nonetheless, when you go from a, a really good example is actually these Love is Blind people that are on Love is Blind season five right now. I looked at all their Instagrams before the season came out. They were all sub 5,000 followers. Some of these people might hit a million by the time uh, this entire season ends airing. And they're going to, that time span is in a month. So in one month, and by the way, they shot this two years ago. So for two wow. years, they've been sitting on this footage. The show comes out now. These people have lived their lives in some kind of normalcy. And now they're going to experience potentially this influencer level fame. Uh, I don't know what that does to you psychologically. And you're obviously going to be going through all of your DMs. And whether these death threats are credible or not, it's going to have some toll on you. Because I don't totally. think anybody's prepared for it. You know, my wife yesterday was like, you know, there, there was this scandal going on that hasn't really emerged yet mm. and i was explaining it all to her and she was like dave stop you're stressing me out <laughs> wait can you explain the scandal to it's me it's the clayton scandal okay the yeah, paternity yeah, yeah. issue right and it, i think i think will i think it will become the biggest national entertainment story of the year really not just the biggest bachelor story huh. i believe where, where with all the information i've seen yeah that it's credible that the person accusing him of being the father of her unborn twins uh -huh. is 100% making it up. Wow. And that's where I stand right now. Now, things could change, but I've, I've credibly seen enough right. that I'm siding and believing that Clayton is an absolute mark. And she, wow. And she's completely fabricating the story. That's which, fascinating. Of course, this week, he's supposed to be taking a paternity test. Yeah. Don't be surprised if she never takes her end of it. Sure. You know, the same uh, narrative is playing out on the current season of 90 Day Fiance. Really? Yeah. There's a guy who went to Vietnam and he was with this girl and they were talking for a little while. She was kind of mean to him. He was kind of mean to her. Then at the end, supposedly, she came to his hotel room like on the last night he was in Vietnam and they had sex. But he claimed and she now says I'm pregnant, but he claims he's on some kind of medication that makes that virtually impossible. And so she might be making it up as well. That's at least where they've cliff hung that episode. <laughs> Take but, the uh, test. Yeah, now look, <laughs> exactly. most people, regardless of gender, tell the truth. Yes. But those that are 
do try to manipulate others. They do it to athletes and famous sure. people. Like they have something like no one's lying to me. No one wants to get knocked up by old Dave Neal over here. You know, <laughs> no one's like trying to, I mean, other than my okay. wife, you know yeah. what I mean? But sure. like, sure. Uh, but hey, hey, prove me wrong audience, but um, I'll take any paternity <laughs> test out there. Okay. Uh, unless it was from my twenties, but then again, no. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a wild time out there. Yes. The long, the more seasons that come out, Mm-hmm. The more ongoing storylines that emerge from past contestants when they totally. get back in the news. How do you now? But and by the way, your HBO. What 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 were you covered in on HBO? It was a show called How to with John Wilson. Yeah. So you were. I mean, they were showing close ups of your charts and Excel sheets and yeah. and all of your you know code words you use. I think it's interesting. You your last name the first four letters spell out cult, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know okay. if, if anyone's ever made this comparison. <laughs> Game of Roses is a cult that your audience doesn't need to leave because you give uh-huh. them such good content. And that's kind of like you've got cult language, just uh-huh. like Scientology does. You are pipelined in with acronyms. <laughs> How did this all come about? It's all in my head, man. I mean, like, I don't... Uh, Lizzie and I... Lizzie is my, my co-host on Game of Roses. We kind of casually watched the show together for a long time. We would get together on Monday nights, smoke a little weed, and get some pizza with a, another friend of ours and watch the show. And we just started kind of recognizing these like these repeating game-like patterns. And we saw we really started seeing it as a sport. And then I was doing like a hundred million memes per episode. She was writing these giant long recaps. And at a certain point we started kind of like imagining, could we train somebody to infiltrate this game? with the knowledge we have about how it's structured and what to do in any given situation. And from that came the podcast, which then led to a book and then led to uh, me now coaching people every season. I've got, I can't say how many players, but I have a, a number that is not zero of players <laughs> in season 28 that's shooting right now. About under a quarter. Yeah, I can't. Okay, I, I, all right, no, I, I can't hey, describe. I can't uh, disclose I'm just any numbers. Politely <laughs> massage these topics here. But, I sure. understand. I would never ask a journalist to reveal their sources or right, disclose right. this. But it's interesting now. I mean, yeah, your book, "How to Win the Bachelor," yeah. uh, talks about playing. You mentioned earlier playing the tragedy card. Yeah. Um, why is this tragedy card important for like the storylines of these types of shows? It very quickly develops sympathy for whoever's playing the card. And the the crazier the tragedy or the more impactful the tragedy, usually the more you can overcome. So if you're getting a villain edit, for example, play your PTC immediately. And hopefully it's a personal tragedy card, sorry. Which is uh, something that everybody basically in Bachelor comes in with. But if you watch like Love is Blind season five, for example, the PTCs on this current season are... I've never seen anything like it. Every one of them is a 10 out of 10. Wow. Major tragedies have happened in their life. Sometimes in Bachelor, you just get like, well, I, when I was 20, my boyfriend broke up with me. You know, you get something like that and you're like, okay, that is technically a heartbreak PTC, but it's not <laughs> going to stack up with somebody who's like lost a loved one or went to jail or whatever. So as we talked about before, it's almost yeah. like you're, it's almost like you are quantifying qualitative measurements, which are yeah. just d- different moods people bring, mm-hmm. the edits that they get based on, you know, all the different factors that over yeah. time, you can see how formulaic it is. Now, what's what's valuable is I I, I edit. I know I know when a clip it, a sound bite is added. Like you can almost totally. tell right away. Absolutely, I, I can't watch any commercials because every commercial is dubbed over. It yes. sounds like garbage, but audiences seem to be okay with it. Yeah. What background? And I know this, but what background to tell the audience do you have that makes you so insightful into seeing the story arcs play out? Uh, both Lizzie and I were TV writers prior to doing. Um, 
our podcast and still are to some degree. And I write movies and books and all kinds of stuff. I wrote a video game once. No way. <laughs> yeah. All the non-player character dialogue for Saints Row the Third, if you ever played that game. How cool. But uh, yeah, so we come from a, a background of like Hollywood narrative kind of stuff, TV industry. And uh, that's where we actually met on a show that I created, Jesus, like 10 years ago called Bad Judge that was on NBC for you one glorious season. Show? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know you created it. Yeah. Now, now, it's already impressive enough when you're a writer on a TV show. Sure. But the fact you created that is really <laughs> impressive. Yeah, I mean, I mean... we're driving through Beverly Hills. Sure. As you mentioned where Michael Jackson lived. This is where yeah. people come from all over the world sure. to, to get a slice of the pie. And you created a show yeah. that existed on one of the biggest networks in the biggest entertainment world. I mean, that is yeah. impressive. Oh, well, thank you very much. It was, uh, you know, it was an interesting experience. I'll say that much, as is any experience with a network or studio at this point. But um, yeah, it was fun. And I've, I've been, you know, lucky enough or good enough or some combination of, the, of both of those things to be able to sell shows pretty frequently for the past, I guess since I was like in my late 20s is when I sold my first one. Wow, look at you. Now, yeah. when you work on a network, they give you show notes and basically yes. they have final edit over types of things, which is why when movies come out, you'll always have like the director's cut because, right. you know, if there's some big studio executive that's trying to, you know, I don't know, they could always botch a show. Yes. Now you've got Game of Roses, which like yeah. you said, with the wonderful Lizzie, how does it feel having what I would, I guess, is complete control over your content versus working on a show that's, you know, sold to a network. It's why I'm doing podcasts. I do another one with a friend of mine named Will Sasso, and I do another kind of weird one where I, my sister and I talk to our parents about my politics. Favorite. My <laughs> favorite. Bro, Thank you for uh, cried, sticking with that one. I've cried listening to your podcast. <laughs> wow. About that. That's, um, uh, that's high praise. Well, dude. let's go into the, that podcast in okay. a minute, but but talk to me about the the freedom of of creating on your own. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like when I was doing that show on NBC, Bad Judge, in the pilot, the the main character had a best friend who would kind of like get her into trouble and, and whatnot, you know, very standard kind of sitcom trope. So through the one year process for, that was from selling that pilot to getting just the pilot made, not even a series order. But in that process, I probably wrote 30 drafts of that script with notes coming from executives who would then get fired. And now here's a new executive on the project. They've got more notes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and eventually the best friend character is removed by the network. <laughs> we shoot the pilot with the best friend character. Cut they out. cut oh! out the fucking uh, best friend. And now, did you have to call this person and be like, hey, remember that dream role you got? You're not in Yes. It. You know who the person was? No. Arden Marin. Do you know her? Yeah. Well, not personally, but she's a bachelor. Yeah, she does a bachelor podcast as well. Oh, she's fan well, she's doing just fine, but she's yeah. a fantastic character. Uh, yeah, funny she was great. Uh, but she was the best friend in the pilot. So they make us cut that entire character and try to recut the pilot to make it make sense. Uh, we do all of that. They order it to series. We are in the writer's room. We have the pilot. They want rewrites on it and reshoots. There's the second draft is coming in. The showrunner is... I mean, there was just so much crazy shit happening. But eventually, by episode three, we have this meeting with the network. And they're like, you know what we think she needs is a best friend. Oh, and no. I'm just like, you've got to be shitting me. And this is, I mean, literally every interaction I've ever had at studio network level has some element of that. Well, you know what I heard about notes is, mm. and it's very interesting when it comes to also the same thing as like a comment section on YouTube videos yeah. and podcasts, is that people that work at networks give notes because they feel like they have to. They feel Absolutely. like they have to justify why they're even in the room. 
That's correct. And that's why um, places like Netflix are great homes for a lot of stand-up comedy now because they're not getting their material cut out because the notes yeah. process worked for doing a stand-up set on Conan. They'd say, well, you can't say ass kicker, so could you say but You know, they would just, yeah. they would just neuter the creative process. So, totally. So and, you saw that happening on your own baby. Yeah, and these, uh, I mean, on every baby I've ever had. <laughs> um, I wrote a movie called The Incredible Burt Wonderstone that got rewritten wow. by... The Magician movie? Yeah. My wife was in that. Oh, what? what who she, was she, she in? She, did like, she was a magician's assistant in real life and That's played insane. a magician's assistant. <laughs> That's so crazy, dude. Wow, she would blow her mind to know That's that. How, I, I got that. into SAG. Oops, I just hit the mic. I got into SAG with that uh, with that show, or that movie, because I was in a little cameo in it as well. Well, you're flustering me with your royalty oh, here. I didn't. Yeah. I, mean, I should have done better but research dude, of your IMDb That page. movie got rewritten about 15 times. And was it sold? Were you sold by that point? So you had no... no Correct. So I sold point, it, and then over the course of the next seven years, it got rewritten by a bunch of people, some of whom were my friends, and be like, sorry, dude, I gotta take this job. I'm like, whatever, dude. The star is what, Steve Carell? Yeah, it was Steve Carell, Jim Carrey, Steve Buscemi was in it. Now, comedies don't always make as much, but if you don't mind me entertaining you, are we talking five figure or six figures to sell it? Dude, that was the first movie I ever sold. You wanna know how much money I made on that movie? Please do. I believe it was $60,000 paid out over the course of seven years. Wow, so what was your initial pay? Uh, the option was $10,000. And this is why, and people Less wonder, agent, less manager, less lawyer. I walked with about three grand for that. That gave them a, I believe a year long, 12 month period to either exercise an option or let it lapse. And they exercise the option for another 10,000 uh, the next year. And if they let it lapse, that means you can then sell it to yeah, another try place. to sell it to somebody else. Wow. But then by that point, they were like, we want to make this. So they bought the script and the purchase price, I believe was 50 something. And uh, that was it. That was all the money that I ever saw from that project forever. Wow. And it's all that I ever will. And people might go, that might sound like a lot if you're just like banging something out in that. But that's like a lot of work. Yeah, it was about a year worth of work for me to write that. Unbelievable. And then more work because they, you know, hang you on doing rewrites and you have to get in all these meetings and stuff. And uh, with every step of the way, you know, it's like, oh, there's a director attached. Well, you do like a little polish for the director. So they get a free rewrite out of you for that a year, whatever later. And this is just, I mean, this is how it's been done forever. I don't know if the current strike is going to make it any better for us, but uh, we'll see. It looks like it's coming close to an end. Tell me the best phone call you were able to give to either your mom or whoever about the biggest like green light you ever had. Was it Bad Judge? Was it Wonderstone? What was it? What was that moment like? I don't know. Um, Because I've had the same kind of question. Like, what's your big break or the big moment where you're like, I finally made it in Hollywood. I feel like I've never had that moment, honestly. Is it it right now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. It's sitting in Dave Neal's car where Tino Franco sat, where Andrew Spencer sat, where Katie Thurston sat. Wow, you did your homework. Yeah, exactly. No, dude, I love this this, Uh, uh, video series that you do. I think it's fantastic. uh, I got trashed on yesterday for owning a Tesla. People what? are like, oh, you're trying to be relatable, but you own a Tesla. And I was like, well, I'm doing these interviews to try to pay for it. Like, yeah. And I, can't, I couldn't afford a studio. So I thought, <laughs> exactly. this is a pretty good studio. It's good lighting. It's, it's great, dude. Good I love sound, it. You know? I absolutely love it. But to answer your question, I still don't really feel like I've, you know, made it or whatever. I've been able to, like, pay my bills for the past, you know, 20 years, roughly, from writing and, and doing creative stuff in Hollywood. But um, I've never gotten to the point where, like, Bad Judge, like I said, that's the only show I've ever had to uh, go to series. I made a bunch of other network pilots that all got thrown in the trash for one reason or another. And then you find out it's like, because the president of the studio was 
having an affair with some actress and her pilot got picked up and yours didn't. And you're just like, Jesus, well, how am I ever going to compete with that? But, um, wow. yeah, I mean, bad judge lasted for 12 episodes. Burt Wonderstone came out. No one saw it. I had one of my books no turned into a movie. That? No, dude, it tanked hardcore. I want to watch it now. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, to that end, like what you're saying, once you get into the network studio system, you put a script in and, and maybe you're doing all these rewrites or whatever. Maybe you're even friends with the director. Unless you're directing it or also starring in it, you have no creative control. Right. Yeah, once you relinquish people, people the script. People have no idea how that works. And, yeah. and a lot of times with TV shows, it's like you need that thing to last four seasons so it can get... Or at yeah. least used to have a residuals, but now they, get, yeah. they go to these streamers and people make pennies. So there's a reason why these strikes are existing. Because Absolutely. it is a raw deal. I mean, I remember when my roommate at the time, when I lived in Harlem... He was going to be on some new like webish webisode show mm. on some new streamer, and yeah. it was called Orange Is the New Black, mm. and he ended up being the, one of the main guys. And I was like, "What's wow. this web nonsense?" And yeah. it became a huge show. And he's done two. And Matt McGorry's done two hundred and fifty plus episodes. Wow. Between that and um, uh, How to Get Away with Murder and all these uh -huh. other things, and um, this year he didn't make any money. He didn't yeah. have health insurance. And it's yep. like how some bloke who's podcasting in my car making more money than some of these people that we think are just like yeah. raking it in. And it's like people need to realize the fight between the unions and the studios is middle class Absolutely. working like creatives. Yeah. It's not all Will Smith. Exactly. That I have some friends who are like in that echelon actors that are like in everything, always the star, that kind of shit. And it's like, that is a life I don't feel like I'm ever going to come close to touching. The The most common experience of people in LA that are working in Hollywood in some capacity is what you're saying. It's middle class. It's like, maybe you can get enough money to buy a house in LA, maybe, uh, you know, or pay your rent or whatever. But it's what you love doing. And you just want to make sure that you're having like a livable wage, basically, in health insurance. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you this. You don't have to yeah. answer if it's too personal. What percentage of your like yearly revenue is Game of Roses? Is this like a major, is this like it right now? Yeah. I mean, it's about, I would say it's probably somewhere between 25% and 33%. Just... And how, and, and how about your other podcasts? All podcasts combined? Are we talking? All all podcasts combined, it's probably 40%. I okay. would say overall, I'm still making a little more money off writing. Um, and, and this year obviously has been a bad year for that because five months of this year have been on strike. Uh, so, you know, maybe it'll pick back up after the strike ends. Because you also always, like as a writer, if you're selling stuff with some frequency, you have projects like everywhere that are in some phase of development or you've finished your final step in the writing process and now you're just waiting to see if the studio is going to make it i have a project like that right now that was kind of like building up steam then the sag strike happened nobody can shoot anything and so we're all just sitting around like are they going to make this movie or not we don't know and if they do that would be another check yeah and i thought that's what was that was crazy when um um oh geez i'm blanking on his name the the writer walked off the dancing with the stars matt walsh mm. um i think he's ucb right yeah. Um, so I thought that was really, I mean, it sucks because you're, you're like basically turning down a six figure paycheck. Not that yeah. I don't think he cares, you know, matters to him, but people don't understand when it comes to solidarity with strikes, you need to suffocate yeah. the, the workflow in order for it to work or else they'll just be continuing to like bleed out whatever projects they can. And these exactly. studios have a stockpile of content yeah. and we're going to see the ramifications of these strikes for probably the next several years. I agree. Yeah. And I, and it's like, I think they're completely mis under, they're, they're not understanding the cockroach nature of writers and actors. Mm -hmm. You know, people spent years getting by to make it and they have no problem. Yeah 
going back to like the fight. Totally. And I mean, that's one thing that I, I feel lucky to have podcasts in this time because I can make some revenue off of it. But also, like you're saying, the, the reason that I'm doing these podcasts is because I actually love doing it. It's it's a format that is relatively new, at least in the, the scope of human entertainment history. And uh, I feel like I jumped into it with Game of Roses and like really kind of cut my teeth learning how to edit my own stuff and make music and all that stuff. But I absolutely love it because of the creative control. Yeah, if you were, if you were a pitcher... Um, and if podcasting was pitching, you would be like the guy who can do long relief. You can close, you can, you can pitch <laughs> yeah. start. Cause you've got your social media is yeah. like bizarre Photoshopping. <laughs> I mean, just yes. bizarre. I mean, I <laughs> hope we can Photoshop some uh, still from this. Cause sure. you just, the way you make Jesse Palmer look like this jarhead and you, you know, one thing after another, and then you guys deliver with yeah. quality content. And I don't think enough people understand how hard it is to get traction in this competitive market yeah. when you're not gifted a million Instagram followers. Totally. Um, so what what was the come up like with Game of Roses? How quickly did people catch on to what you were doing? Uh, not that quickly, honestly. We, you know, Lizzie and I, like I said, I was making all these weird memes and I think I had maybe like 9,000 Instagram followers roughly when we started the podcast. And Lizzie was doing a bunch of these like just super crazy long, almost like, uh, New Yorker Atlantic length recaps complete with little gifts that she was making and embedding. And, um, Oh, she was doing them in like a blog form. Yeah. W literally she would be sitting on my couch. I would be sitting in this chair. I would be compulsively photographing my TV screen with my, uh, cell phone. Cause that's how I'd make all my memes. I just like get high and lay in bed and roll back through like you're trying to angle it right. So the forehead doesn't look too big. No, you're... sometimes I like that, you know, <laughs> depend, it depended, but, uh, and Lizzie would be just be like, like typing a million miles an hour, sitting two feet away from me. And, you know, when we decided we wanted to write a book basically and see if we could infiltrate the game, we then were like, we should do a podcast where we can kind of talk out the ideas for the book and then help that will help us write the book. And also maybe the podcast will be fun to do. And it turned out that it was really fun. And uh, our first big thing happened when we, I can't remember the order of this. There were two things that happened maybe when we had been doing it for about six to eight months, I think. Uh, one of them was we went on Chatty Broads. They reached out to us. Big, big and put podcast. Us on, yeah, it was huge at the time. One of the biggest in, in Bachelor Nation. And that expanded our audience pretty quickly. And then we did another thing where I want to say this was when Reality Steve, I, I believe it was his interview with Colton Underwood. This is like three plus years ago. I took that and I basically like cut it up. And then Lizzie and I listened to the little bits that I cut and kind of reacted to it, which has now become a, a thing we do on our Patreon called Digging Deeper, where we go through all of the most important clips from podcasts from around Bachelor Nation and reality TV at this point. But, um, Reality Steve heard that and then had us on his show as well. And those two things kind of like started getting us to a point where we could, uh, you know, potentially get some ads and stuff in the show. Yeah, it's such a fun, like, behind the scenes community. I've really enjoyed She's All Batch, Reality yeah, Steve. Me too. So many, you guys, obviously. And just not every story. And by the way, how nice are some of these houses? I know. Oh my it's, gosh. It's a nice neighborhood. We're in a $20 million house. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at least. Holy cow, we shouldn't even be driving through these neighborhoods. Either way, so yeah, you develop like the, the so much knowledge about the show mm -hmm. and having that information in your back pocket brings out the confidence level that can really own what you're talking about. So like totally. when, like you talk about with podcasting, 
having a successful podcast involves presenting that information in the best way possible. Yeah. Now, I'm kind of manic and stuff, and some people it's a turnoff, and some people like it. <laughs> I don't realize what I'm doing. Dude, I think you're, like, you're very like, especially when you're doing uh, your little like 15 minute YouTube videos that are some piece of news in Bachelor World or whatever. I think those are like on par with any entertainment news show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I try to. Sometimes I lose my shit. Like today, I actually had to make a video in my car responding to that Nick Vial story because yeah. I was dropping my dog off in Venice. It was a 90-minute drive from, uh -huh. from downtown. And I was like, I'm not going to make it home in time to proper... Like, I couldn't wait. So I, yeah. I popped up everything in my car. But halfway through, I'm losing my shit that I'm screaming <laughs> and yelling. And I'm like, this... Oh, no. I believe this is what my audience needs. Yeah. They need, if I'm feeling this way, to illustrate that. Yeah. It, because it's just like... You, you have to imagine people are either sitting at their office job or they're breastfeeding their kid. They're just looking for someone to help pass the time with. And when you've got like a real good story to tell right. or something real, like you're digging deeper episodes, mm -hmm. people almost, they, they want to know what you think about a subject more than they care about that subject. Yeah. I mean, I definitely try to kind of like walk the line between delivering valuable information to the, the audience that watches Bachelor, which I'm a part of like basically determining what information I think is important is just me asking myself, like, is this interesting to me? But then also uh, presenting it in a news way, but also presenting it with, you know, whatever my own spin on it is. And I, you know, one of the things that we kind of like very early on in Game of Roses we're talking about was the idea of the pit, that we all at some point get sucked down into this fucking pit by our fandom of reality TV and of Bachelor Nation. And we just decided like, we're gonna go as far as we can. We're gonna let ourselves get as crazy as possible and just let this fandom overtake our entire lives. And I think that has, uh, ultimately it's like you're saying, it has helped us certainly develop a kind of level of expertise and understanding about not only just the history of the show and who all the main players have been, but how it's made all the behind the scenes stuff. What like this year, what went down with, uh, Mike Fleiss getting ousted and then all of his loyalists kind of being, uh, ferreted out by Warner brothers, HR, and then also fired. That kind of stuff is interesting to know because then you can see how it reflects in the show. Like Charity Lawson season felt to me totally different than anything in the last three years. Felt better. And uh, hopefully that continues. You well, know? I'm sure the audience respects when you notice that because then they notice it. It's mm -hmm. almost like when people are like, oh my gosh, the new season of Ted Lasso sucks. And then someone yeah. goes, well, there was a fight in the writer's room. And you go, huh? Yeah. You just make a banger TV show? Well, yeah. there's dynamics at play. Who's going to be editing the show? Who, how far do the producers want to go in pushing at the contestants? Yeah. Um, and um, and, uh, in, and when you mentioned the pit, I was told I was in the pit before I even knew what you guys were. We had such, oh, wow. we had such parallel thinking with regards yeah. to like kind of calling out the show on things mm -hmm. that I was like, oh, yeah, I keep on being asked. Uh, people keep saying I'm in the pit. I go, what's the pit? Oh, it's Game of Roses. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I am in the pit. And, then, look, and by the way, I'm wearing your merch. And Fantastic. this is not like, oh, I put it on to entertain you. Oh. I've worn the hell out of this shirt. Oh, dude, thank A you. A well-worn shirt, tight on the arms, yeah. good on the chest. I'm, I'm wearing Game of Roses merch, too. This yep. is the LA icons. And of my wife wears that. The hat and shirt you guys That's sent. That's great. The hat looks great on. Glad it. you guys enjoyed it. Absolutely. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, I wanted to uh, talk about your other podcast. Yes. So there is a. I don't know if you heard about this. There's a political divide in our country. In this country, some might call it a social civil war happening. <laughs> and <laughs> my dad would call it a real civil war. Yeah, they're coming for us. You know, I've heard, and boomers get very upset when yeah. they're called out because they worked very hard for those million dollar yeah. homes. But I've heard that that the older generation has, and, and also conservative folks, respectfully, yep. 
are more in tune with the, the fear side of things. So mm -hmm. they're almost easier to be scared. Like they're coming for the borders. They're taking your guns. They're stealing your wages. They're, they're, totally. they're coming for your Bud Light, you know, like whatever. Yeah. Um, what was the inspiration to have a show where you talk to your parents who, or, and, and tell me how you would consider yeah. them politically versus you. Uh, well, my parents are deep QAnon MAGA Trump supporters, like 100%. My sister and I are definitely not. We are the exact opposite of that. I wouldn't necessarily classify myself as like a Democrat. I vote that way. But I, I follow, think... I follow your sister's um, uh, uh, cupcake shop. Is that what it is? Yeah, she has a bakery, Texas, bakery outside Dallas. And uh, she she's super liberal and, you know, tattooed from her chin to her toes. My parents hate all that. But we hadn't talked to our parents in like in any substantive way in probably six or seven years. Mm. And it started sometime during the Obama administration and my parents are getting older. And I, to your point uh, about like them being afraid of everything, I think it has to do with mortality to some degree. I think when you hit that age and you're looking at the world and you're like, I'm about to die. And the world that I grew up in, the, the kind of reality that crystallized when I was somewhere in my middle years, my thirties or forties is evaporating. But I think that's terrifying. Respectfully, it's also lead poisoning. Are you familiar with this? No. I, no All boomers have been lead poisoned? It's 100% true. Oh, shit. There's lead po there was lead in the gasoline and paint and in toys yeah. in the 70s up until the early 80s. And this lead is a neurotoxin, which affects oh, your ability to rationally talk about, like it, it does affect, it, it does affect people yeah. and it, there's no, there's no cure for it, but 100% it, it has been proven scientifically that it is something that contributes to to people being duped and, had, and being very irritable. But, well, but also, that could be. I don't, to, to my audience that's older, yeah. we're not talking about you. You don't have to take offense when we say the B word. This is just a collective <laughs> generational thing. Just like you yeah. think my generation's lazy or whatever. Yeah. This is a generation that we are, um, you know, these are our parents we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it continues. So they're, they're, deep, they're deep in a different pit, yeah. as it were. Deep in the QAnon, they're only watching Newsmax, even Fox News is like too liberal for them. So I just decided like, you know, are my sister and I really never going to talk to our parents again? Are they going to die with this divide between us? And is there some way to bridge that so that we can have some kind of a familial relationship again? And I decided <laughs> because I was doing two other podcasts, I'm like, why don't I just start a podcast with them? So I did that. And every Monday, give or take, I mean, we don't have like a set schedule. Sometimes my dad has to do shit or my mom has to do shit or whatever. But for the most part, we try to every Monday get together for an hour and we talk about the four biggest political things that are going on that week, which is a trip. And uh, my dad loses his shit, but I think it has helped because when we go back for like Thanksgivings and Christmases and stuff, since we started doing this podcast, we don't really talk about politics. It's a much more civil uh, in-person experience with them. I think because of what we're doing. You've on the almost podcast. burnt off the divide. Exactly. Now, do you think there's a feature film in that? Do you think there's a, your big moment in that? bridging the gap between ideological issues. <laughs> I don't because know, dude. I'm telling you, I'm yeah. listening to your podcast mm -hmm. and I'm taking my brain. And that's why I love audio only podcasts, which yeah. is also why I believe stand up is best consumed in person, but second best album, mm -hmm. just listening to it because it takes you to a place you can't get to visually, sure. which almost sounds counter 
productive, but I believe in that. And when I'm listening, I almost hear your dad getting up off of an old brown recliner, (laughs) running into the other room, clanging things in the kitchen, and then coming back. And you can hear his voice fade in and fade out. And it's like, this is Americana, folks. I mean, this is it. Yeah, I, I get a lot of DMs about that podcast from people saying, like, I have the exact same relationship with my parents or whoever. And, you know, it's given some people, I guess, the uh, the blueprint for how to talk to their parents about these things, which is fantastic. I mean, I'm really just doing that podcast for kind of selfish reasons to, to force my sister and I to have some relationship with our parents again, uh, despite our, our absolutely opposed political views. Now... But, do you, your relationship with your father, Yeah. Uh, do you think he's proud of you? you? You're obviously a creative guy. Is he creative? Uh, is he, I mean, no. I don't remember if he's a veteran. He is a veteran. He was in the Air Force during Vietnam, but was stationed here in the United States. Never served in an active uh, war or anything, or war zone, I should say. But um, yeah, I don't know if he is or not, honestly. He wanted me to be a pro baseball player, and that's kind of what he put all of his efforts into because mm. he wanted to be that. Of course. Uh, and so I don't know if he is. And he, his job, his whole career has been um, trading natural gas and oil and things of this nature for kind of like big Texas oil companies. So I think he, he values that. And I don't think he quite understands how anything out here works. Nobody does, honestly. Like It doesn't really work in any coherent way. So I get that. But I don't know if he's proud or not, honestly. Has he, what's the best, you, like, what, what's your love language? You, is it affirmations or like, is there something you you could use from your parents that you don't feel like you get? Cause we all sort of like pursue our, our hero's journey in a way sure. to, to prove to our hometown or our parents or our high school, whatever that we, that we can do it or whatever that is. Dude, I don't know. For me, I don't think that's true. I like just compulsively, my brain is making shit all the time songs, images, books, whatever. There's just shit in there. Well, then I take that back. I don't need to prove anything. (laughs) I'm perfectly cool. I don't need (laughs) I just like was at a very young age, I was kind of like, fuck, I don't think I'm gonna be able to do a normal job. Like I got to figure out a way to make money of all these like weird things in my head or I'm, I'm fucked. So I just came out here. I went to film school, you know, always made good grades and stuff. So I had a little bit of luck there of like getting into this college or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I just was like, I got to figure out a way to make money doing this or I'm going to be absolutely miserable. And that's really the only drive that I've, <laughs> I've had since I've been out here. No, that's a factor. I mean, it's and it's another reason when you when you look at people that come from wealth. Um, mm. There are people, I, I know comedians that they get 200 bucks a day. Their parents gives them like, so they're like, all right, yeah. I can do this, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it's like where it is, it must be very challenging to be very creative if you don't have the fear that comes with failure. And if you yeah. have a net that is there, mm-hmm. that is ready to pick you up if your first three months in Hollywood didn't pan out, you don't get to the part where you cry in the parking lot of a totally. uh, of a coffee bean. Yes. Or I, all of my first jobs before I started selling like books and TV shows and stuff were kind of in the periphery of what I wanted to do. Like I worked for a long time at a place. This will really date me. Uh, it was called 305 Creative Advertising Incorporated, now defunct. But we did a lot of DVD menus and bonus features and shit like that. Oh, so my, those are the best. Dude, well, I mean, the stuff we did was like Disney Princess sing-along songs, volume <laughs> one through ten. It was just a nightmare. Like, I hated it. But it was writing to some degree. Coming up with these little briefs to send to Buena Vista Home Video Producers to be like, we want to do your Winnie the Magical World of Winnie the Pooh, volume three bonus features. Um, 
but that was mind numbing. And it really did help, I think, like push me in a direction. It was like, fuck it. I got to really hunker down. If I want this to happen, nobody's going to make it happen except me. And so on my lunch breaks at that job, I would go, I would hand write a manuscript for what would be my first published book ultimately. Wow. But, and just constantly putting it out to agents, entering competitions, trying to get agents any way I could, just like beating on every fucking door. And I do think that experience is like valuable in an industry like this, that's highly competitive. And you have almost no shot of getting through that first barrier of what it really is, is getting someone else to help you whether that's an agent, a manager, a writing partner. I'm talking specifically about people writing. People will but. usually help you if you've proven to be equity that is worth their time, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Which is like, yeah, how do you get that how do you get that ball rolling if you know you, you know as a writer, you're not like the hot young thing that comes through like, you mm-hmm. know, in most cases you're not the the person who's walking across the street spotted by a talent agent. You know, like there's a totally. Real, there's a real brick wall there that, like I always say, the Randy Posh quote isn't meant to keep you out. It's meant to show you how bad you want something. I absolutely agree. And you're right with writing, especially in books, because it's like getting somebody to read like your half hour sitcom pilot. You could probably do that. That's not that hard. That takes you like 15 minutes. Getting somebody to read your hour and a half long movie, a little harder. I getting somebody to read your fucking book. Not possible. You know what? People don't understand this. I couldn't get my wife or my mom. They have not read my pilot I wrote. And you just, it's like, I, and it's harsh, not like dude. I didn't tell them 15 times. It's just like, maybe yeah. it's their ADHD or whatever, but it's like, read the effing manuscript, man. It's 10 minutes, it's 15 yeah. minutes. So I totally understand that, let alone, because it's like, I was naive because I didn't get into writing, you know, and I'm not a writer, but I was like, I wrote yeah. this thing and I was proud of it. And then, and then I was like, yeah, no, I guess I'll just send it to people. Yeah. It's like, that's not it. That's not it. It, it kind of is though. Like, dude, I remember one of the first things I ever did <laughs> was, again, this will date me. There was an old show on HBO called Project Greenlight. I loved that show. I did too. And so for the first season of it, or maybe it was the second season. I forget what it was, but it was one of the first two seasons. Basically the way this show worked was anybody in the country could submit a feature length screenplay and then it would go into this kind of like weird competition where people online, other people who had submitted their screenplays, would get to vote on it and whatever. And uh, one of those screenplays got selected. They made the movie. They cast, I believe, in season one. Shia LaBeouf was in that movie as a little kid. And they got somebody to direct. And it was uh, produced by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And it was supposed to kind of like say, look, we can make a movie outside the studio system. And this is going to launch people's careers. That was the goal of it, right? So I wrote this uh, movie called God Turd that was about a turd shit by God that came to planet Earth and this cop has to stop a demon from eating it and taking over the world. Okay. These are the kinds of things I write. Uh, At least I did that. And uh, it was like very irreverent, obviously. In the stage direction of the screenplay, I would be like talking directly to the reader and be like, look, you piece of shit, you're not ready for what's on the next page, stuff like that, you know? And so I send this into Project Greenlight and uh, you see the the responses, you see the feedback you get on the thing. Universally, this script was funny, but it doesn't follow proper screenplay format. This guy doesn't know what he's doing, you know, all this kind of shit. So it got voted down, but I, I kept those things. Still, I have them somewhere. I printed them out and I was just like, it made me fucking laugh 
that people got so worked up about the fact that like I wasn't doing traditional screenplay format or I was you know painting outside the lines basically. Yeah, squeaky wheel gets the grease though. Like, well, that script ultimately got me at least a meeting with a guy that would become my first agent. Amazing. Yeah. That's so funny. Well, that's a story. There's this old actress. I can't remember who it was. You might know, but it's a famous story where she had an audition and she was chewing gum. And everyone's like, what is she doing? And she takes the gum and puts it under the, the chair at the audition that she was on. And then she walks away. And they were just like so grossed out. Weird. And um, she's a, it's a famous actress who this happened to, like a mega, huh. mega A-lister. And then afterwards, they went to the chair. And there was no gum there. Oh, wow. And it was, it was just a good like, oh, be the Danny DeVito. Yes. Who's his height, which they probably said you'll never work because you're just oddly shaped. Be, be the very specific you. Be the god turd. Totally. That is so different because if you try to conform to what you think people want, yeah. you're just going to be a watered down version of what someone else is going to do better. Totally. And, and auditions, I feel like it's the same thing as like YouTube. Basically, there's so much shit. When you, I mean, I've, I've had to sit on the other side of those auditions when people walk in and they want to play, uh, you know, like I did a pilot once at ABC that was based on my family and we had to audition the actors for the person that was going to play the version of me and my sister and my mom and my dad and all this stuff. And you're just, you're literally watching like 50 people a day come through, read the same exact lines and maybe somebody's a little funnier or maybe they're not, but you're just looking for anything Different. to make them stand out. Yeah. That gum thing's awesome. That's, That's so great, funny. A great trick. Now, I wanted to ask you something, and yeah. um, I, pardon me if this is intrusive, but you did you have cancer on your face? Yeah, dude. Can we talk about that? Sure. Um, because I don't know if I've heard your story about that. Yeah, dude. It was rough. This hap This was when I, I'm 47 now. This happened when I was great, 42. Thank you oh very much. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 47. Uh, yeah. I, I thought I was getting a zit above my lip. And I was like, oh, this is weird. It's been here for a while and it's getting a little bigger. So I go into my dermatologist. I'm like, what the fuck is this thing? They're like, it's cystic acne. They inject it with cortisone and send me on my way. Five days later, it's like quadruple the size. It's like maybe a small pea protruding out. It's starting to make my lip like swell up. I've never had cystic acne in my life. I'm like, it's weird that they would think at 42, this begins. Um, so I go back and I'm like, I don't think that's what it was. Can you biopsy this? They do. It's skin cancer. Oh. It was um, squamous cell carcinoma is what it's called. But because they had injected it with cortisone, it's now growing oh. uh, at an alarming rate. So I have to go have this surgery called Mohs micrographic surgery. And the process of this is they like scrape out the tumor and then they go look at the, the tissue they've taken under a microscope to make sure that they have like a clear area totally around it, that there's no cancer left. So I go through this process, which is not fun. You're literally just laying in a chair. They're injecting your face with uh, Novocaine basically and just carving scoops out of your, your face. So I go do that. The guy who does it is known, it's right here in Beverly Hills. He's known as like one of the pioneers in this. He's so good, blah, blah, blah. He winds up leaving some of the cancer in my face after he stitches me up. Three days later, there are now three things growing off my face. Oh I'm like, what the fuck? Gosh. I go back seven surgeries and three days later, they're just carving more and more out of my face. I have some gnarly pictures of me with just like, there's no face here. Uh, I look like oh. a walking dead zombie, just like skeleton teeth. Did you see the teeth through the smile? Not even through the smile, dude. There was no flesh like on this whole part of my fucking face. And so, uh, and are, at any point, are you worried for your life or is, are you just cosmetically being like, oh, uh, this is... I didn't think I was going to die cause it was only skin cancer. And I had ultimately, I would, I would later go and get a bunch of tests and stuff and it never spread anywhere 
luckily. But um, no, I was more concerned with like, I'm going to have to wear like a Phantom of the Opera mask for the rest mm. of my life or some shit like that, which wound up not being the case. They did a pretty good job of like stitching me back up and it's healed and all of that. And I've had to go through radiation and all these crazy processes, which I don't recommend radiation unless you have to do it or chemo or any of that shit. It's real gnarly. But um, yeah, I made it through it all. And I feel like to some degree, uh, it's made me like, uh, definitely changed my diet, but um, it's made me stronger person in, in one way or another, I feel like, you know. Well, uh, when you say it's made you a stronger person, is that, you mean because it's it's so, it's literally on your face? Uh, like, 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 were you, I mean, because it's like, look, I mean, there's bigger issues that could have happened to you, but it's still sure. like, God, man, it's like, that. that's definitely something. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, no, you know I've mean? never like, been like. I don't think my my strength of the world has ever been like being a Tyler Cameron super good looking yeah. guy. So I was like, whatever. I don't think it makes me look like that much shittier than I already did. No, I mean it's actually it's barely noticeable, but it's enough yeah. so that I know I've that people have talked about it, but I didn't know what the actual story was. Yeah, let me just pull over here. Sure. Uh, no, man, I think it's made me stronger just by going through some kind of an experience like that, where you know, like, okay my life is about to fucking drastically change. Like going through radiation, I was 190 pounds starting that process. By the end of it, I was 138. Oh my and that gosh. was over the course of about a month. You're vomiting and stuff? Uh, no, I never puked from it, but I lost like all taste, couldn't eat. Like basically it, because it was on my mouth, the radiation turned the inside of my mouth into the whole thing down to about like three inches into my throat, just was like an open lesion basically. So everything, even drinking water was super painful. Wow. Um, but yeah, going through something like that really shows you like, well, fuck, I can pretty much do anything. Seriously. You know? Incredible At least that's stuff. how I've taken it. Incredible stuff, dude. Well, thank you so much for talking. Dude, thank you. Me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Again, I feel like I am sitting in the, the throne of royalty. <sighs> Likewise. This was <laughs> a fun, such a fun conversation. For Absolutely. anyone, For anyone that's like questioning you know getting started creatively or anything i think you've offered so much inspiration to like see that you've you you when when we talk about like i asked you about your like big breaks but what you've yeah. kind of shown is that it's a lot of rungs on a ladder and it's cool yeah. to see you not just as someone who's kicking butt with game of roses but all of these other creative endeavors and creative uh plants you your water sure here. so thanks again for doing the show one more time Dude, i really appreciate it my pleasure man thanks for having me